we are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 107 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you the IRS coming for your crypto, Russian Bitcoin thief sued, and could China rival Facebook's Libra? All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and joining me as always is the wonderful Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you other than wonderful? Uh, angry at Petrit for uh, hacking my computer. Ah, uh, producer Petrit, uh, forcing us to change the software we use to record our podcasts. Forcing us to change. We, we fear change. Much we fear like, change. <laughs> much, <laughs> much like many in the crypto world. Colin, there's so much news this week. Let's just get started. The first story comes from uh, Coindesk.com. Uh, the Huawei CEO calls on China to create a rival to Facebook's Libra. Um, the CEO remarked that China has the capability to pursue such an undertaking. And he was asked a question about the US global he hegemony and Facebook's issuance of an international currency specifically. He said, even China is able to issue such currencies. Why wait for Libra? The strength of a state is greater than that of an internet company. I mean, talk about laying down the gauntlet. Why, why do you think uh, the Huawei CEO felt the need to make comments like this and felt the need to point out that China as a state-backed currency would be something that can compete with Libra? And, and why might that play to a Chinese audience? Um, I, I, I don't know enough to answer why he thought this needed to come out of his mouth, but um, uh, I, I guess his point is, is actually quite valid. I mean, if, if you are able to access a state sponsored or state governed cryptocurrency as an average user, that probably sounds better than accessing one that's controlled by Facebook. Um, especially if we talk about China where Facebook is absolutely banned. Um, having some kind of official approval is probably a positive thing. And again, I don't know enough about um, particular cultural aspects in China of whether that's an overall sales point or not. Um, but at least in, in the UK, in Europe, in the US, having something condoned by the governments is probably more positive than uh, set up by wild wild cowboys at Facebook. It's interesting that um, since the uh, Libra was announced, searches on China's web search giant Weibo actually skyrocketed. Uh, this in spite of the fact that Facebook, as you say, had been banned in the country since 2009. Uh, it seems like China had been interested in crypto previously until crypto was banned. So um, there's there's an interest from the population here in things like crypto that seems to be coming. Um, but I, I thought that the, the Huawei CEO was speaking to the Chinese state and the Chinese government as an audience as much as anything. And part of the reason for that was because the you know the history of China U.S. trade war and also the Huawei being caught in the middle of that Huawei have been uh, pushed people uh, the U.S. government specifically has pushed back against Huawei routers and infrastructure being used for 5G technology the next generation of mobile data provision. So you have now Huawei caught in the middle of the U.S. state versus the Chinese state uh, the future of internet infrastructure them sort of coming out being rah rah the, the Chinese state um, and maybe perhaps optically seeing what uh, Libra was as being more statist and, and close to the US government and a way of the US uh, kind of increasing its uh, uh, dominance and power over the control of money. Uh, whereas I think back home in the States, Libra was seen quite differently by the US government itself. So interesting how people can see things from different perspectives. Absolutely. I thought it was interesting. This this interview was actually in an Italian 
the Italian equivalent of the Wall Street Journal of the FT, uh, L'Economia. I've pronounced it horribly wrong. I don't speak Italian. Um, but I thought it was interesting that, uh, that he gave this interview to an Italian uh, news outlet rather than um, maybe an American or Chinese outlet. Interesting how it's perceived in the rest of the world. Um, I don't know if you picked up this week, but uh, I've certainly seen a narrative around uh, Libra actually far from being good for privacy and crypto. Um, it's been seen as bad for privacy and crypto, especially as uh, statements like uh, there are rumors, I think it was on the block, uh, crypto.com, that uh, David Marcus believes, you know, sort of they're 80% of the way there with US regulators and that Libra can be very compatible with regulation. Um, there's, a, there's now a conversation out there about you know is is Libra the ultimate way of having money that it, you know, follows you and, and completely invalidates your privacy in the same way that arguably Facebook has in in the social media space or or Zoom um, <laughs> yeah I think we we had this discussion a bit last week as well um, I mean I, I there are things that came out of the the testimony from Congress uh, last week was it the week before I've, I've lost track of time completely. Um, that that really, as a casual user who I would say is only moderately kind of concerned about my own privacy online, uh, would say that's absolutely nothing I want to be touching. Um, but you know, we'll see. We will see. And of course, the the linked story here is uh, again from the blockcrypto.com. Uh, Libra Libra crypto may never launch due to regulatory scrutiny, warns Facebook. And they uh, they had some quotes in their latest Q2 report filing with the SEC uh, that said there is there can be no assurance that Libra or our associated products and services will be made available in a timely manner or at all. Uh, we will also incur increased costs in connection with participation in the Libra Association and the development and marketing of associated products and services, and our investments may not be successful. Any of these events could adversely affect our business, reputation, and financial results. Pretty interesting warning, but I guess uh, Facebook has to make these sorts of disclosures about risks to its business to the SEC and its quarterly filings. Interesting, though, that the, it's the other side of the story here. Yeah, um, and this was another thing that we talked about last week is, yeah, there's a very good chance, I think, in my mind that this thing never takes off. Uh, what I did find really interesting in their disclosure is that they said that they didn't have enough, uh, they didn't have significant talent inside the organization uh, within cryptocurrency. So uh, give us a call, I guess, for this book if you're listening. Um, I, that, that was an interesting uh, remark to put in there, but um, one would hope that they are able to acquire that considering they hired um, some fairly well-qualified teams from the University College of London and, and others. It's interesting that um, if it was a surprise, if this regulatory backlash was a surprise, it does make you wonder um, who, who they might need to have hired that could have told them this was coming. Um, because, I mean, go back and listen to the episodes of Blockchain Insider. We were not the only ones by any stretch. Pretty much everybody said that the regulator is going to puke up all over this thing. Um, which is which is exactly what's happened, uh, but but it's interesting as well that uh, Facebook are probably in a position where they've got uh, the rest of the world, Huawei, the banks, and others uh, being being cajoled into action. So um, this story will no doubt continue to run and run. But speaking of being cajoled into action, uh, of course the regulators are, are not alone. The the taxman's getting involved, and the story comes from Coindesk.com. The Inland Revenue Service, the IRS, says it's sending warning letters to U.S. cryptocurrency owners. So they announced on Friday that it's begun 
begun sending letters to taxpayers who own crypto, advising them to pay back any taxes they may owe and file amended tax returns regarding their holdings. They further said that they've sent letters to more than 10,000 taxpayers by the end of the month. Uh, what did you think of this one, Colin? Was this a great surprise to you? The taxman has a long memory. I, absolutely. I was completely caught off guard by the fact that the taxman would want to uh, come in before all of these these uh, three-year or six-year, depending on how it looked at, uh, statute of limitations runs up from 2017 returns. Um, <laughs> it, I had heard that uh, there were rumors going around that this was from their request that they pulled from Coinbase, I think in particular, um, where they identified people. So a lot of these letters that went out uh, weren't necessarily that people were in violation, though some that they had identified uh, as being fairly certain. Um, but a lot of them were just to say, uh, make sure you do it correctly. And I've, I've spoken with some people who are very sure that they have done everything correctly um, and are pretty sure that it came through Coinbase and uh, are wondering why they got the letter. But it, it was just kind of a general, let's send this out to everybody's name we've got. Yeah, it's interesting. Coinbase for some time, uh, I think, were pushed and there were some reports about them having to collaborate with the IRS and, and uh, with tax authorities now in the UK as well and others. Uh, it's interesting, though, that uh, you know, they, they being the poster child for it, uh, seem to be the exception rather than the rule. There's probably far more people with some uh, Trezor and Ledger Nano somewhere that are much harder to trace that the IRS may may not be able to get to. Um, how serious do you think it is that uh, you, know, the, you have something like Bitcoin, where uh, the record exists forever, uh, people could, in theory, go back and investigate where there has been fraud. Um, do, do you think that that's a, a concern for reputations of businesses and people involved in this space? Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a concern. But um, even if there's a ledger of transactions, there are a lot of things you can do to um, hide your your transactions, and they don't necessarily have a lot of the information about. Uh, that you need to, to ascertain whether there was a, a capital gain or a loss or anything else that's taxable on this. Um, a lot of transactions that are quite benign and at least, and I'm not a tax expert, um, shouldn't be subject to tax, like moving between two wallets that you control um, might look like on a ledger like you've made a sale. So I, I don't think it's quite that simple, but we'll see. It's an interesting challenge already. Well, um, moving us on, uh, it's time for a quick show, Colin. Um, it's uh, it's that time of the show again. Shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Um, quarter and quarter enterprise, best of both worlds. Uh, this episode is, of course, brought to you by R3. Um, and quarter is fast becoming the gold standard in enterprise blockchain technology because it's an out-of-the-box platform built specifically for businesses that come in two versions, open source and enterprise, both completely interoperable and compatible. Uh, and you can actually get started on quarter open source and easily migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. Um, the quarter platform offers the best of both worlds and it's backed by over 200 application builders and consumers. Uh, you can download the open source on GitHub today and visit r3.com to download Corda on Enterprise on a trial basis. All right, on with the show. Uh, the next story, Colin, uh, comes from Ripple.com, and it's an open letter to Congress. Um, so this is an interesting one. Uh, the, I'll, I'll read the letter. Um, Dear Congress, please do not paint us with a broad brush. Um, I, I immediately wanted to go to the uh, paint me like one of your French girls reference from Titanic there, but um, 
Many in the blockchain and digital currency industry are responsible actors. We are responsible to the US and international law, we're responsible to serving the greater good, uh, and we don't take for granted the vital role of central banks in issuing currencies and monetary policy in concert with the complex dynamics of economies around the world. For centuries, governments have been well suited to the job because of the paramount acceptance of any currency is trust. Companies like ours in the United States and others abroad employ these innovations in partnership with regulated financial institutions to enable the world to move money. Uh, without doubt, blockchain and cryptocurrencies will engender great financial inclusion and economic growth, um, not unlike the internet's historic impact, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, we urge you to support regulation that does not disadvantage US companies using these technologies to innovate responsibly and classifies digital currencies in a way that recognizes their fundamental differences, not painting them with a broad brush. Without regulatory clarity, we risk pushing the innovation, tax revenue, and jobs that these new technologies create overseas. Respectfully, Brad Garlinghouse, CEO of Ripple, uh, and Chris Larson, Chief Executive and Chairman and Co-Founder of Ripple. Interesting that they felt the need to create this letter, Colin, given the context of uh, Libra and everything that's happened there, and even to to distance themselves from Libra. What? Why do you think that they might want to be distancing themselves from from the scrutiny of the likes of a Libra? I don't know that this did that. I, they also published in the Wall Street Journal. They took out a full page ad for mm -hmm. this. Um, I, I thought it was. Uh, tasteless, I guess, to put this out just after they announced that they sold a quarter billion dollars in the last quarter of XRP, which ultimately a, a large chunk of those are going to end up in retail hands, even if they're washed two or three times through market makers. It's a disgusting company, and I don't really know what they're trying to do and what they're trying to prove here. Um, but is a billion dollars over the course of your XRP sales not enough and you need more? Um, either... I don't know why you would put this letter out, especially with the mood in Congress, unless you want to get hauled up in front of Congress. I can't see any reason to do this. Maybe they say they don't want to be like Bitcoin, which I think, as far as Congress is concerned, got a slightly less of a beating over the last couple of weeks. Um, may, I can see why you wouldn't want to be like Libra, but anything out there doing this is only going to walk you down into that rabbit hole. So maybe they've got good lawyers, so maybe there's a reason that I've completely missed here. And I'd be happy to hear that in feedback, but I can't see any reason why you would want to do anything other than lay low right now if you were Ripple. So that's an interesting question. Um, I wonder why Ripple um, didn't want to lay low in this particular situation, because like, surely if, if uh, crypto generally is, is getting beaten up by governments, I think it's interesting to make the point that, um, and, and many have made this point. In fact, I think some of the US senators did during the Libra hearings a couple of weeks ago, which is, do, 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 is there a risk that um, US companies uh, actually lose, lose out to international competitors in other markets that have a different approach to innovation? Like, is that a real risk? I think it is. And, and actually, right before I jumped on this, I was listening to Jeremy Allaire from Circle talking about that. And um, he just moved part of his operations in Poloniex over to Bermuda that wasn't servicing U.S. clients because of that. And I think that there are people out there and industry bodies that companies like Ripple and Circle and others contribute to that could pass this message on. Mm -hmm. And why they wouldn't use them just boggles my mind. Um, I, I don't know why you wouldn't go to somebody like um, the the digital currency initiative at MIT or um, many of these quasi-influential governmental bodies, somebody like GDF um, as, as another example, why you wouldn't go to them and say, hey, let's let's 
get a bunch of signatories and talk about why this could be detrimental. I know I've spoken with um, uh, European treasuries from different countries, and they've they've worried about this exact problem of we want some of this tax revenue, we want this job creation from cryptocurrencies, from blockchain, um, and we're ready to to make some compromises on it. But why a single company thinks that they can come out and do this? Uh, in the U.S. in July 2019 is really just kind of odd. And I wonder then if the audience isn't actually governments. The audience is the banks, which is um, to in, – and in the Wall Street Journal, this is like, hey, um, I know people are concerned about Libra, but there's a credible alternative here. Um, look, we're going to advocate for the use of this credible alternative technology. Do you think that's the that's the intent? Which which banker do you think in 2019 has not heard the spiel from Ripple at least three or four times? I know in 2015 I'd heard this at least half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all heard it. They've all dismissed it because, frankly, the idea doesn't work. And the only way they're going to get traction is is by buying up uh, companies like MoneyGram that are failing because their business models are dying. Um, and maybe they can salvage them a bit longer because they've got a lot of cash. And maybe they can keep the whole ruse going. But honestly, it's going to end up like Theranos. That's the only way Ripple's going to come out. It's going to be interesting to watch for sure. Um, this this really um, sort of captured my attention for that point around the the uh, the disadvantaging U.S. companies, and I think actually. Uh, it's interesting that what we haven't seen here is JP Morgan writing this letter to an open letter uh, because they have a, the JP Morgan coin and they they're obviously concerned about the technology but you would fully expect that through all of their advocacy efforts uh, with governments and central banks they're making the point quite clearly that there are ways to make these things regulatable and and being quite transparent about what they they're trying to build now um, that's not saying that banks have been whiter than white in everything they build going forward and, you know, sorry, historically, but that the, there is a right way to do this. And it's interesting who's doing it and who's not. So maybe there's something we can take there. Um, there's also a link story here from the blockcrypto.com. There was an interview with uh, a controversial developer who was putting personal files on XRP. Uh, this week, a developer who launched a, a file storage app on the prolific Ripple Ledger faced a backlash for what the community says is, is a use case too far. Uh, Ripple community members have argued that file storage is not appropriate for the Ripple Ledger. There are also fears that large uploads could slow Ripple's network. Masses of XRP uh, community members told the developer who remains anonymous that the app called uh, IDLMN um, could bring fragility to XRP by using it for file storage. Colin, what's actually going on here? This seems like some just rogue developer causing trouble uh, in, in the Ripple space. Uh, that's one way to look at it. And I think that that's the way that some people have framed it, um, particularly from the Ripple community. So, um, Let's bear in mind that that XRP, at least on paper, or what we're being told by those in the Ripple community, is an open, permissionless, decentralized ledger. Meaning nobody has control, nobody has any particular rules that they can enforce on it. There's, it's like Bitcoin or or Ether in their minds. Meaning, um, if you want to do something illegal with Bitcoin, you want to do something um, that I don't like with ETH, Ethereum. Well, you kind of have the ability to do it, and I can I can jump up and down and yell and scream, um, but. There's nothing really that would stop you from doing it. So if, if we say that XRP is the same as that, um, okay, fine. Um, somebody went out and they said, okay, there's a legitimate field in every XRP transaction called a memo, which is exactly as it sounds. You can type in kind of whatever you want. And they said, I'm going to set up a service, which is a website that will save in small chunks across multiple Ripple transactions um, information that can be recomposed to uh, show a picture 
So you can load pictures in and, and download those pictures later or other types of files and use it essentially as a database. Um, and they found that Ripple doesn't charge very much for transactions. That's kind of their thing. Um, and so they said, well, let's let's use it for that. And even if we need to split this across a thousand different transactions, um, the total cost is pretty minimal. Um, they did that. A lot of people realized that uh, this could create some problems just with the network. Uh, what then transpired was uh, a group on 4chan, um, our, fa- our favorites over there, um, decided, hey, let's actually try to crash Ripple with this thing. Let's try to crash XRP. Um, and hey, let's do one better than that. Let's put a bunch of illicit images on this thing, like what we've seen in, in BSV or images of China that have been banned in China um, on Bitcoin in 2017. So uh, obviously there are some people who are trying to look at this and say, hey, we think this is a decent use case. And it sounds like from this interview, that's what the, the initial developer has tried to do. And some people who want to take advantage of that to do things that may be negative for XRP. Um, what is really, really interesting to me is XRP, amongst all the blockchains, um, is a very, very big data, data-heavy ledger. It's like nine plus terabytes. Um, so three times um, a full Ethereum archival node, which means you save everything possible about Ethereum. This is three times larger. Um, if people are already starting to feel the strain, and there's only about 125-ish full nodes that you can identify on, on Ripple, of which 30 are what are called validating, um, of which over half are, are from Ripple, the Ripple Labs, the company, or companies that are directly funded, publicly known by Ripple. So calling it decentralized is maybe a bit of a no- misnomer. Of the remaining 30-ish percent, uh, sorry, 38-ish percent, uh, that are independent or quasi-independent, um, they're spending their own money to uh, hold up and, and validate things on the Ripple ledger. And you could imagine that they don't necessarily want to hold a whole lot more history of things that are not in their own benefit. But it's it's a very difficult thing technically to try to coordinate that and maintain the ruse that you are decentralized. So, I think it's, you've got to sort of almost damned if you do, damned if you don't, given the nature of what it is. Like You have to be moving towards decentralization if you are making the argument that you are decentralized. But then if somebody uses the technology in a decentralized way, which means that you know, it is truly permissionless and it can do things that are censorship resistant, uh, like you saw, like the examples you mentioned with Bitcoin and Bitcoin BSV, these might not always be things that you as, as the network originator want to happen, but the nature of it being decentralized and permissionless means tough shit. Mm-hmm. Like they, they kind of have to be able to, otherwise your claim that it's decentralized is not true. Now you can create incentives in that network, you can do everything to make the primary purpose this other thing over here, and you sort of see that happening with Bitcoin and Ethereum more and more, and the community around that. And it's interesting that the the, the Ripple community here has responded that we don't like this, this is intended to do something different. So you know the community element of that certainly seems to be actively trying to discourage it. But it is interesting that uh, we might see more of this as it as it becomes, you know, as they take further and further steps to become quote unquote more decentralized. Um, interesting thought experiment, and also I, interesting how data hungry Ripple as a ledger is. Uh, and if it becomes more decentralized, would that start to become a constraint, or will we develop technical solutions to that? Uh, it, you know, like if if nothing else, this is really interesting as an experiment in how uh, these technology platforms and different designs for these technology platforms are starting to scale, and the real world use cases that sit upon those. Like if you're observing 
this mechanism of validating this type of blockchain from a distance, that insight that like this thing is data hungry and therefore I need to be aware of that is still quite a powerful lesson, regardless of whether you're working in a, in a bank or if you work in another industry or whether you are just a developer looking at what are your options for, for using this tech. Mm. I think it'll be worrying if there's ever any meaningful adoption of XRP. Currently, people will probably disagree with me if they're holding a lot of XRP, but nobody's really using this thing on a regular basis. And if we're already straining to have, what, 17, 18 non-Ripple-funded um, validating nodes on the on the unique uh, node list who are complaining about the cost of this, imagine if there was a thousand times the transactions. It would be hard to keep up. And what's their incentive to do so? Just rely on the only, only company that is incentivized to do it, which is currently Ripple. Indeed. All right, next story comes from Bloomberg.com. Um, the Russian Bitcoin theft uh, suspect has been sued for $100 million by the US. So uh, digital currency exchange BTC-E and one of its owners, a Russian, whose extradition uh, the US is seeking from Greece to face criminal charges, now face a civil lawsuit in California. The US, attempt is, uh, the US is attempting to recover penalties of $100 million from the company uh, and Alexander Vinnick uh, for... Uh, allegations, alleged violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. But it was detained in Greece after the US also charged him with supervising a digital currency exchange that helped criminals launder billions of dollars. And again, this comes to the point that regulators have a long memory uh, and the regulator is coming. We seem to be going through uh, waves of sort of uh, excitement in the permissionless markets and, and crypto sort of up. And then the regulator is coming and having to clean up a, a lot of this space. H how did you view this one? Uh, BTCE was, was a really interesting uh, experiment in exchanges because there was a lot of stuff that was very very dodgy uh, back in the day, even before they picked them up. Um, and it was it was regularly used as a, as a vehicle to cash out of ransomware payments and those types of things. Um, it, I'm not overly surprised that they're trying to come back and, and settle out debts that were accumulated from BTC during, during a lot of what are pretty clear violations. Um, it's interesting that they're going to use extradition on this or trying to use extradition on this. It is, and the, I guess it comes back to that long arm of the, the U.S. lawmakers. Uh, if, if you're doing something along those lines, uh, wherever you are in the world, the U.S. has some influence. Um, I, I want to talk about a broader point that this made me think of, which is, you know, how's this uh, landing with the mood music? You, you talk to people in, in banks on a regular basis, uh, uh, as do we sometimes, but uh, the the kind of mood music around crypto seems to be something that has been separated from the value of uh, using tokens in enterprise. I think historically it was DLT versus crypto, but now it's a bit more tokens can be useful if you use them in different ways. Do you think this regulatory mood music is affecting what banks are doing, or is it just kind of um, seen in a, in a different perspective? I, I think the story and the narrative that Bitcoin was bad because it was used for criminal purposes um, was a pretty easy way for banks to say, we're not involved in this, um, and, and we have a decent reason to not have been involved in this. At the end of the day, let's be honest, uh, if they can and there's money to be made, banks will become involved in this. And that's why they're banking some of the very large companies like Circle and Coinbase. Um, this is something that's already gone on for a while. This is not new news. The only thing new about it is that they're trying to get the money back. So I don't know that this changes the mood music anywhere. 
um, it just proves the point, which is basically Bitcoin is a pretty effective way to steal money and have it difficult to to censor. Um, and going through the rigmarole to get it back and get a hold of the the Russian national who was in Greece at the time and drag him back over to the U.S. is not a simple operation like it would have been just to claw back money out of a, a bank account overseas. It's uh, yeah, it's it's not a simple operation at all. Um, but I guess you know, look, we we, we have seen uh, I think in the press recently there's uh, there's some of the banks being pulled up for some uh, activities around forex. Um, there will always be wherever there is financial services, there will always be risk and there will always be ill conduct. It's it, it's interesting uh, where the opportunities are to prevent that in the future uh, and and to try and do good stuff for good people. Alrighty, um, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, Theblockcrypto.com, Coinbase has lost another executive. Its uh, product council for institutional products has rejoined the CFTC. Uh, Newswire.ca, Galaxy Digital announces the approval of a license to underwrite registered public offerings of securities. Uh, watch that space for sure. Uh, it could be interesting coming to that point about uh, you know, kind of the the uh, issuance of securities and the registration of securities. Um, and Coindesk.com, Bitcoin rewards at Lolly expands to 900 retail locations. Any thoughts on any of the stories we didn't have time to cover, Colin? Uh, I hope Coinbase finds their, their lost executive. <laughs> Where did they put them? It's always in the last place you look. Yeah, in um, CFTC, apparently. Uh, already. Uh, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Daniel Q, and it reads, DeFi, uh, as in uh, Decentralized finance. Um, dependency hell meets finance. Imagine NPM package bugs, but for your money. <laughs> um, imagine compound finance C tokens were wrapped as a short token, uh, and wrapped in a set protocol set, but now consider the vulnerability that affects baseless C tokens. Now the whole stack comes crashing down. This is very software heavy, uh, Colin. Shall we pause this one for the non uh, for the for the more banker driven audience? Yeah. So so imagine. Um like when there's a a bug in Windows and that bug then uh, permeates across everybody that uses Windows and everybody that is reliant on somebody that uses Windows and that creates big problems. Um, the fact is because everything's replicated, it's an issue. Now imagine that problem is money. Um, so imagine a banking system or an ATM network goes down because um, every bank that uses Windows is now affected with some bug that affects Windows-based ATMs. Um, so that's that's DeFi in short. And what they're saying is because essentially one of the big ideas is you can compose different products together, different decentralized finance uh, products. If you have a problem that you find out about later, um, a la the DAO, um, it can be very difficult and quickly permeate across an entire decentralized financial system. Let's explore that concept of composing products a little bit because I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, so the, I, I, I oversimplify it as almost being like Russian dolls um, that you've got like the, the smallest one and then you get one larger than it and, and you just keep finding them in, inside of each other. But like financial products are quite complex things. So how do you wrap one inside of another inside of another? Well, so um, the idea of decentralized finance is a lot of these things should just kind of perform one task. So um, the largest one is, is something called MakerDAO. And we've talked about that a few times on the show. So the idea is I have a, a bunch of Ether. Uh, let's call it $10,000 worth of Ether. And I want to take a, a, essentially a home equity line mortgage out on that thing. 
Um, so I put that into a special contract on the Maker platform, and I can withdraw up to about two-thirds of that value in a stablecoin called DAI. Um, and I can go out and trade that. I, I pay some kind of interest for borrowing from, from that money, um, which goes through a complicated thing, which we won't really explain today. Um, but I have a stablecoin that's supposed to be tracking the dollar. Um, now, I may want to do something like that. Like maybe I want to take that stable coin and I want to use that into invest in another product that's based off of the returns of the S&P 500. So there's a separate um, swap where somebody is essentially saying, I will pay you for a fixed fee um, the return on the S&P 500. So this is called the total return swap. Um, so these are kind of using these things together. Now I may um, take that return on the S&P 500 and I may try to put that into something else so I get some kind of interest on holding that product in something called compound finance, which is basically just saying you can take from one hand, loan it out to somebody else, and then get some kind of return on it. So that would like look a bit like securities lending. Um, so you could have all these things kind of compiled on top of each other. If you found a bug in the maker contract, that could essentially blow up everything further down the line. And it almost becomes like a domino effect that they all impact each other. And and we we those things all existed before, and they could have had that domino effect. But weirdly, them being sort of more manual was uh, it, it kind of created that little bit more space where the systems weren't as as interrelated in some way. Uh, but then. I mean, the cynic in me wonders, could I have said the same, like, hey, you know, getting rid of the postman and having this email thing will really suck because if everybody's using email software and then those email have attachments, then, you know, like the whole thing could just come down like a house of cards. What if, what if my internet service provider is down? Is there some element of that that's just um, people being uh, unaware of the uh, kind of, you know, the, the ways in which software can be developed well? Or is it just, uh, how real is this risk? Um, I mean, if you start compiling big numbers on top of these things, even a very small risk can can become a big headache. Like imagine imagine if your uh, bank and your your entire monetary system was as stable as your email account. Um, I, I don't know a lot of people <laughs> who would go, yeah, that sounds like a great trade to me. Um, it's interesting yeah. when you said even a very small risk can become a very big problem. I thought that was like a Chinese proverb that uh, by Colin G. Platt, right? There. I, uh, that, that is more a banker's <laughs> proverb, right there. Like a, a very a very small probability multiplied by a very large notional number um, is essentially it's called a black swan, um, and and it does things like Lehman Brothers, um, and and they're not great things to happen. I mean, we could make the argument that Lehman Brothers was that systemic risk. But here we're transferring a company which, in theory, can be regulated, can be controlled with unstoppable code. Yeesh. Uh, so pros and cons on this stuff. Um, the unstoppable code is useful, but maybe the uh, uh, and composable assets are useful. But we got to think through like a bug can go a long, long, long way. And we have seen the community do interesting things like auditing smart contracts. And there is uh, there are people trying to think this stuff through. It's not like uh, these issues aren't being pointed out. Indeed, this this is a conversation in the community. Is how do you deal with these errors? Mm. So uh, I think it's it's fair to say that um, you know the one of the most interesting and exciting things to me about this space is how people are wrestling and grappling with these challenges in an open discourse in which you could just go read these conversations that people are having with each other and just be learning the whole time about what could be really powerful technology for the future of finance. Mm, absolutely. And I think eventually we're going to see the re reemergence of intermediary clearing houses throughout these systems that kind of provide those backstops. 
Are we all reinventing the maze? We will. All right. Um, before we let you go, uh, I had a great chat with uh, Michael Rouse, who's a cryptocurrency and blockchain lead at the Cambridge Center of Alternative Finance. Let's hear from Michael. Welcome back to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Michael Rouse, who, who is cryptocurrency and blockchain lead for the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. Sir, how are you doing, Michael? Doing great. Thanks. Uh, how are you? Uh, pretty tired. <laughs> 2020 has been nuts. Um, but it's been an interesting show. Have you uh, got any takeaways? Is there anything you've picked up from this year's show? Uh, to be fair, I had so many other meetings. I just arrived this morning after my flight got cancelled, so I actually didn't really attend many sessions. Okay, um, no so <laughs> All I've got is that there's much going on here, so huge circus. <laughs> it, it is a little bit. But seems very interesting. Though. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun show. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your background and what you do at the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance. Sure, so um, I'm essentially an economist by training, mm -hmm. so I've always been interested in economics, financial markets and so on, and stumbled up on Bitcoin uh, pretty much five years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to write a master thesis on the evolution of the Bitcoin ecosystem. So I collected data of uh, 500 companies and projects mm -hmm. and then visualized essentially the evolution of the structure over five years. And that's kind of what got me um, to Cambridge. So they just created a new cryptocurrency and blockchain program at the Center for Alternative Finance, which is a research center based at Judge Business School. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we started working there uh, on these benchmarking studies and I've been leading that program since two years now. Good stuff. I mean, uh, what, what kind of studies have you done? Can you give me an example of some of the work you've done? Sure. So the main uh, focus is really what we call these benchmarking studies. So the idea is to go out through the ecosystem actors directly. And so we do that for public blockchains, crypto assets, but also for enterprise blockchains. Uh, and so that could be, um, you know, exchanges, miners, wallet providers and so on, but also financial institutions, central banks, mm -hmm. policymakers. So we collect data directly from them uh, and then combine that with publicly available data sources. And they're actually a lot of them. Uh, and then we try to provide an empirical picture of the current state of the ecosystem. So more like a fact-based you know, approach rather than all the opinions are floating around. So we try to do our best. To kind of like a, a, a genuine approach to <laughs> research. How about that? And, and, and actually, you see so much research where you immediately from the press release can see holes in the methodology. I think to have somebody in this space in particular in which data is cheap but facts are hard to come by, it, it, it's really hard to, to get to really high-quality research. So and that's a problem, right? Because media, they like to have these punchy headlines, mm -hmm. like Cambridge says there are 200 million cryptocurrency users. And that's actually what people said. But then actually, when you look at the methodology, a huge footnote, it actually says, no, that's not the case. But still, media like to pick that up. So we're very reluctant to do these kind of estimates, Yeah. Uh, just because it always gets taken out of context. And the problem yeah. is, it's not black and white, right? So it's always yeah. more complicated than... Context is such a hard thing with numbers, and when when the headline writers are trying to get clicks as well, it's, a, it's exactly. an interesting thing. But you know, what are you seeing as you as you stand back and look at the macro trends in the the crypto and blockchain space? You know, what are the themes that you're seeing emerge? So one thing that's definitely clear is that there is a consolidation in the sense that um, so what we call these different market segments, so wallet services, exchange services, mm -hmm. and so on, that actually more and more entities really combine all of these on the wrong roof. Mm -hmm. So to really become these one-stop shops for everything, so keeping the users yeah. on their platform. Um, and so that's something that has really accelerated in the last two years. Um, what else? Uh, good question. <laughs> Lots <laughs> we, of other things. So many different things yeah. that really add on the top of my head. Uh, I guess um, the, the one that interests me is, is the subject of uh, kind of uh, ICOs moving to IEOs and actual 
amount of people investing. Is there a way to get at a view as to who's investing? Is there new capital coming into the space? You know, like you, you, I think you hear a lot of people say, um, oh, the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. You know, what, what can you see from research? So we don't cover ICOs on purpose, just because the last two years have been a huge frenzy, mm -hmm. and we already have so many things to cover that we decided <laughs> to leave that out. Uh, but when it comes to institutions, I think the last two years we've definitely seen um, kind of like slow institutionalization. And what's really interesting to see right now is that even despite the bear market, we see uh, really established institutions that announce the launch of you know either custodial uh, services mm -hmm. or exchange solutions. And I think that's a pretty good sign. One of the things I heard earlier from uh, Max from B2C2 was this thesis that uh, people really paid attention during the bond market. And then what they realized, even without the bond market, is that there's a lot of volatility. And where there's volatility, there's alpha. So people are looking at this emerging um, sort of area as being something that they could actually move into um, in spite of the reputational risks. Which makes me ask the question, you know, what are you seeing as some of the, the risks for this area? And, and, and how are you helping educate people to those risks? So I think one of the main risks, well, I'm not sure you can call it really a risk, but what we can definitely observe is that there is a financialization mm -hmm. uh, going on. So essentially building all these layers on top of Bitcoin and other crypto assets that just like, you know, abstraction layers of abstraction layers, which kind of like hides the risk again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so essentially we're just recreating pretty much the same financial system that we already have today, just I based on cryptos. Now, of course, at the base layer, you have that certain verifiability. But as soon as you go more abstract, so when we're talking about you know, um, depository receipts essentially and yeah. derivatives on these and derivatives on derivatives and claims and claims on claims, it gets really messy again. You lose that sort of in, that transparency that you had as the advantage. You lose that traceability that you had as an advantage. And so suddenly all of these things that we liked about crypto, in order to do layer one scaling and in order to do all of the things that make it more efficient, you suddenly lose the thing that was there that was the promise of transparency and inclusivity and all of that kind of good stuff. Exactly. And that also makes it so hard to actually measure the activity levels and who is using it and how they are using it. Right? In the beginning, it was very easy. Everything was going on on chain. So you had all the data there. Now, essentially, 80 to 90 percent, I would estimate, of all activity happens in internal databases of custodial service providers. And what's going on in there, we have absolutely no clue. And that is actually the interesting stuff. So it all gets a bit hidden, unfortunately. And so we try to uncover that by reaching out to the companies. But understandably, they're quite reluctant to share some of that data. So it's Funnily yeah. enough, how about that? So what do, what do you think the opportunities are? If you were to gaze into the crystal ball and sort of say, um, in financial services, uh, as, a, as a sector, the alternative finance opportunities are and the, the challenges are. You know, have, you, have you thought about that? Um, in what regard exactly? So if, if I was a financial institution and I was looking at the area of crypto or alternative right. finance, what are my opportunities but what are my risks? I already think about crypto as, in particular, Bitcoin as synthetic commodity money. So synthetic in the sense that there's no physical nature to it, so it's mm. completely abstract in the digital realm, and commodity money because there's no formal issuer, mm -hmm. um, and there is a predictable and also kept supply, so mm -hmm. it's kept artificially scarce. And that's something we haven't really seen before, at oh, least in the digital wow. space. And so I think it's still very early, but if you really internalize that, that's a very powerful I was going to say, it's a thing. novel concept, and I exactly. want to go away and think about that, because when every now and then, like a lot of times I hear something and I'm like, Okay, yeah, sort of heard of a variation of that, but I'd never genuinely heard that before. Have you done work on that? Have you got any writing on it? Um, no, but this is actually so 
There's an economist called George Selgin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Mm-hmm. But uh, so he's written about this since 2013 or 14 already. So uh, if you're interested in that, have a look at his. Writings. I will definitely take a look at it. So uh, if you were to sort of uh, look at the space, uh, kind of from a perspective of stable coins and tokens, and then. Bitcoin more broadly, where would you say the activity is and where would you say your research interests are as, as the next two, three years start to approach? So as we cover the entire ecosystem that um, kind of like implies anything that runs on, you know, a blockchain and whether, however you define a blockchain, of course, it's another topic. Um, but so, so we actually just published a report on the regulatory landscape. So mm-hmm. we surveyed different jurisdictions and the different agencies there. And the key challenge that we had is really terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just starts with the term crypto. So what does it mean? So there's essentially three interpretations. Uh, the first one is the broad one, which I find pretty useless. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially any token issued on any type of blockchain. Mm-hmm. So it could literally be anything. <laughs> then there's like that what we call the intermediate view. So that's any token issued on a public blockchain. Mm-hmm. And then the narrow view, uh, which is just these assets that are essentially that play an essential role in the underlying economic incentive design mm-hmm. of that uh, ecosystem, or sorry, the, uh, the underlying, um, essentially, payment system. With the idea that if you strip the asset away, the system stops functioning. The, the system stops And functioning. to me, that is the only distinctive characteristic from all other types of digital assets, right? Anything mm-hmm. else is just a digital representation. I, I would agree with you. Except those digital, that doesn't obviate digital representations being not valuable. Oh, no, sure. I would just argue that let's stop calling them crypto assets because yeah. otherwise we create, again, the same confusion that we have now with blockchain and DLT, that yeah. the terms are essentially meaningless. Yeah, because I think to refer to those as tokens and to have different definitions for those tokens is helpful. And then crypto assets is this other thing. Yeah, I, I This is why I'm really looking forward to the R3 Digital Asset Working Group, uh, where they're working on these token classifications, because I think um, they've done some great work there. Yeah, well, shout out to Colin G. Platt, um, the uh, richest man in the world and uh, mm-hmm. chair of the PTK Foundation, uh, who is, of course, running that Digital Asset Working Group with R3, who are our sponsors. So shout out to R3 as well. Uh, listen, Michael, thank you very much for joining uh, Blockchain Insider. Where can people go to find out more about what you're doing at the uh, Cambridge Center for Finance? Uh, we'll see, uh, for alternative finance, that's it. So we've got a website where you can find all our reports. They're freely available yeah. there. Um, and I'm very active on Twitter. So if you want to give a follow. Definitely do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Alrighty, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, just to remind you all, this podcast is, of course, brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and, indeed, financial infrastructure. We create truly digital propositions, working directly with customers, understanding their problem and delivering only enough solution um, that a customer will love and want to use. Um, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, hit the subscribe button. And if you're already subscribed, don't forget to throw us a review. Uh, Alrighty, Colin. Where can people find out more about you? On Twitter, at Colin G. Platt. At Colin G. Platt. Uh, You can find me at S.Y. Taylor. Uh, A big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra, and Hannah, Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Bye for now.